How's how was the weekend? How was Thanksgiving? It, it was good. So I have three little kids. So generally, the holiday days are just make sure the kids are alive days. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So um, anyway, it's it's really. It, I want to just kick this off by saying thanks for uh, for joining, and also we've got some listeners already that have joined the room. Um, I've known Aaron for I'd say how long now? A decade. I think when I first met you was when you started Udemy and yeah. you and Gagan were working together. Uh, I absolutely loved seeing some of the videos of you last month signing um, and ringing the bell at NASDAQ. So that was very, very cool. I'm, I'm so proud. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time today to talk a little bit about your life story. Ironically, uh, our families grew up in roughly the same region, so I, I've always thought that we were we are related in some way, shape. So maybe what would be great is if we could kick it off with maybe you introducing yourself, talking about your story, and then diving into where you grew up. And also, would love to hear about your mother. I know she was a teacher uh, in Turkey, and and also hearing about her life story too. And yep, thank you, Jeremy, for having me. So. Uh, as you mentioned, I, I grew up in uh, Turkey, southeast part of Turkey. Um, I, I was in a small village, uh, and my parents were teachers. And I grew. I I was born right after the 1980 coup in Turkey, where my the area I was born was under really strict sanctions, both economic, but also just a lot of um, a lot of policing, a lot of like army pressure, military pressure, um, and my and because of those. Uh, the area I was born had almost no teachers, no doctors, because most people would quit their jobs like if they were forced to work there. Um, and my, my parents were very idealist teacher, idealistic teachers. So my mom decided to move back to our village, and she became the only teacher in that whole surrounding area, where I think a lot of people, kids from different villages were just coming to our village. It was just really one, one teacher for the whole school. Uh, she would rotate between classes, start with the first graders, maybe teach them for five, 10 minutes, uh, give them something to do, switch to second graders, third graders, fourth graders, fifth graders, and actually just rotate. And actually I was remembering also, she would maintain the school uh, outside the school hours. And then she would just, even after in the weekends, she'd go to each house and try to convince people to teach their daughters to school. Because at that time, Honestly, a lot of time, just a lot of girls who did not even uh, just were not even necessarily sent to school. So they, even that was essentially some work for her. And she had become a teacher by literally running away from home and going to a boarding school, boarding teacher school. Uh, so I think that she really kind of understood the value of education. And one of the things I remember most vividly from like growing up is how much every single kid in that village really kind of hold on to any opportunity for education they could find. Like, this is just a really mountainous place where in the winters you have like sometimes like four or five feet of snow and all these kids would just go like walk like five, 10 miles every day to come to school and they would just not miss even a single day of the school. So, like, like growing up, wow. I really remember like this is the thing I think sometimes people in more developed countries don't appreciate as uh, like here when we think about education, motivation, we think about kids not wanting to go to school and uh, just wanting to do other <laughs> things like, but then the, the majority of the country, like, world like right now actually is trying to fight for any opportunities they can. I think, I think there's a pretty different view of like 
what the biggest education problems are when you live in Silicon Valley or, or some kind of other places. So yeah, I grew I grew up there, and honestly, I was like really. Right. Uh, so for me, the ticket outside there was I was very like interested in chess. So I started playing when I was four years old. Uh, my, I remember hearing about yeah, that. My yeah, my father actually. I mean, this is now I'll, I'll give you the more like more full story, so which I couldn't tell in some other places, but. My father was uh, like a political, was a political activist. So after the 1980 coup, they were just like arrest him for just like, not arrest him, but just like detain him just to, without any charges, literally seem so, like he was kind of on and off for like political activism. Um, and actually in one of the times that he was like uh, detained, he, he apparently he made chess pieces by just carving wood um, there. And then he came out with kind of with wow. wooden chess pieces that he had made, and he taught me how to play chess. So I do have this like really. I think growing up, I had this almost emotional connection to playing chess. Uh, so because she, she, like he really kind of wanted me to be like really good at it. Um, so yeah, I was play, I was playing chess, but later huh. on I kind of realized I love mathematics even more. So uh, that was my interest and. You can get to the details more, but we. Yeah so, yeah. so so basically, maybe walk through what it was like <laughs> there relative to the United States. Like how how poor this region is not exactly wealthy. This region is very different, and and sort yeah. of the, it's it feels like this region is definitely an area where you feel a major discrepancy between the amount of technology that's available and wealth that's available. So maybe walk through that and then talk about why that gave you the inspiration to say, Hey, I'm mm -hmm. interested in computers. <laughs> yeah. So like, it's actually funny. It's like I'm, I'm technically in the millennial generation. I think like I'm the, I'm the probably the oldest group in the millennial generation, which here people define as people, the kids who grew, grew up with internet as the formal definition. And in my case, like, I think I don't, I grew up with electric. So I, I, I don't remember when electric came to our place for the first time, but I remember very vividly when we had television for the first time, we had uh, phones for the first time. Uh, and much later, actually we had clean water in the houses for the first time. So um, just like sewage system was built more recently. And I actually just like a, kind of a proper road was really built like a couple of years ago. So. Uh, so essentially, I, I, like, even all those like primitive like, technologies, I actually grew up one by one, kind of seeing them for the first time. And in one of those times, I had this cousin who was uh, like who lived in the capital of Turkey, and he would come to our village like over the summers, and he would tell me about this thing that, that called computers. I had never seen one I, like, but he would wow. just talk about it like. There's this computer, he talked about programming, he talked about, I remember like so early games, uh, maybe in 3D modeling, uh, like things like Photoshop, the kind of photo editing concept. So he would just tell me about this and I would just listen to him for hours. Like I remember just like literally not seeing a computer. I just, I was so fascinated with the idea of the computer that I would just like, just listen to him. Um, and so a couple of the years after the computer started becoming more and more common. And so one thing we did as a family was, so my, my, my parents were teachers. Uh, at, at that point, my father's like teacher job was reinitiated. Um, and, but it was still, my, my father had eight more siblings. So we had to 
kind of work over the summers in kind of different farms, just kind of complement the earnings. Um, so in one of those years, I think they kind of made more money than expected. So that was just a kind of some extra kind of cash for the first time. And I, I'm like, my parents like knew how much, how much, how fascinated I was with the computer concept. So they decided to buy a computer and that really became like a milestone, big milestone for me. So I think like, if you think about my life, there's like pre-computers and post-computers, like different, two different worlds. So we, we got the computer. Initially, it was for my older sister who was going to go to college a couple of years, like in, in a year. But over the summer, I started finding all those uh, communities uh, where people dis- were discussing chess problems. So I learned about like international metal Olympiads. So I started like looking at those questions because I was really kind of not that motivated for like the standard mathematics, uh, mathematics right. curriculum and questions, but like there was really not much to do other than that. So I started seeing this, this like world of math problems where I, the first time I saw them, like just I had like, I, I hardly knew how to begin, but I just kept like, I, I downloaded them, printed them, started working on them just by myself, like for maybe like a year. Um, so and meanwhile, I found some IRC channels where, where like, there were some other people who are talking about the problems, maybe giving directions. So essentially, I started self-teaching myself mathematics, especially around more like competitive uh, international Olympiads type of mathematics. Um, and yeah, and I think like after looking at that for a while, I, I ended up like winning gold medals in Turkey's national metal Olympiads, which really became my ticket, like to re- real ticket outside the area I was growing up at. So, and I end up winning a silver medal and international medal Olympiads, uh, almost completely wow. self, like kind of just really self teaching myself using internet. Did, um, did you get to go to Istanbul or Ankara for that competition? Like, was that part of the, the, the chess competition? Yeah. So uh, the national one was, I was in Ankara, like there were multiple camps. Uh, so once I got into the Turkish national team, there were all those like, uh-huh. training camps as well. Uh, but the International Olympiads was in the United States. It was in Ohio in 2001, uh, so, or, or 2000, I'm not sure. It was actually kind of right before the 9-11. Uh, I remember this because like, once I came, I came oh, to the wow. United States for Olympiads, but then I think because I was just entering the country like right around that time, I had like several years of like security checks on my kind of profile. So every time I had to... And through United States, I, I, I always went to like, like something like the first time it was like a six month security review before I was allowed to enter the country. So I think I was assuming it was just because I, I entered the country right around 9-11. Interesting, interesting. And so, so chess competition happens, then, you know, you decide to, do you go to yep. college in Turkey? What, what about that? Yeah, so uh, it was a math competition. So um, after I did that, I actually had the opportunity to come to the United States to go to college. But my two older sisters were going to college in Ankara. So, and I was really young, actually, like skipped a couple of years. Uh, so I was kind of 15 when I was entering college. So, wow. um, like, I was still too scared of going to the United States. Also, like, the I wasn't sure whether it would be like fully funded with grants. So it, it, it looked like you'd still need to pay something like maybe five, ten thousand dollars per year, even if you got uh, a lot of grants. So that, that was definitely very expensive because you were three siblings going to college in the same time. So 
so between the cost and also U.S. like like at that age, sound looked like a scary place to just live by yourself. Uh, so I decided to go to Ankara um, and I studied computer science and mathematics as double majors. My sisters like we can stay in the same place. So like I just I had the op- op- opportunity, but I nice I I I, I, I chickened out. Okay, so. <laughs> well, you were also 15. Yeah. I mean, you were 15 and grew up in a, you know, a very different world. So, so how far was, uh, was your sister's place and, and Ankara from, from where you grew up? It was, uh, I think like 10 hours of bus drive. Uh, so, wow. Uh, it was, uh, so we just, we'd go there with bus. Uh, so we stayed there, cooked there, did a lot of work. Uh, like it was, it was, it was a trip from our hometown. So, but it was kind of nice to, just go to college with my sisters in the same time. Of course, of course. Now, um, so so after college, then you you come to the United States pretty pretty quickly thereafter, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think this, the full story here is when I went to college, the, my assumption was that I would become a math professor. So I, I was assuming it was going to be like master's, PhD in math, and maybe then go to United States, like I join a university here. That was my kind of starting assumption. But our college supported doing double majors, like dual majors. So I decided to also study computer science because I just was personally interested in it. And I think it was 2001, kind of end of first year in college. So I, like we, most of us did not own a personal computer. So like I was just going to the university kind of labs to just do programming and other activities. So. Uh, I was kind of staying up pretty late uh, every night there. And I remember like when we were going to go to the internships over the summer or some other kind of breaks. So we wouldn't be able to listen to music because it was just like we did not, we were not bringing personal computers to work. So um, I built a browser-based music player in 2001. So Darren, do you remember the, the, the software VNAND? Of course. Yeah. So essentially, I made something that looked like a VNAMP clone, but it worked in the browser. So uh, we huh. kind of put a bunch of pirated uh, songs to a computer club server, and I built a browser-based user interface to listen to music where you could create playlists, like you could... It's just essentially it was looking at the folder in the remote server as if it was your own uh, computer's kind of folders. Um, and it just listen to music so that like wherever we had browser access, we would be able to listen to music. So I built right. this kind of, uh, like little application, essentially for myself and friends as a kind of fun thing to do. At that point, I have no idea about this whole startup concept. Just going to put it up there. Like I think, I think I didn't realize what a startup is like at least four years after that. So I, I did that. It was really fun. And I actually realized I really, really enjoyed kind of building things. And at the same time, I realized I enjoyed competitive mathematics, but not academic mathematics as much. Like I was good at good enough at it, but still, I just enjoyed creating. I enjoyed like more competitive mathematics type of stuff. But I, I realized that I just want to become uh, like guilt kind of products like with computers rather than just stay in the academics. Uh, that was mostly really the stuff I did do during like the first couple of years of college. I just built a lot of side projects and things like that. But I think the one, the one I'm still most proud of is was the music player because in 2001, even the idea of building a rich user interface on a browser was a very very foreign idea. Like I, I of course, yeah, 
It was a big yeah. idea. I mean, it was probably in Flash. It wasn't Flash. Right? It was actually Flash 4 was the first time you could actually spit. <laughs> uh, like the, when I realized you could actually spit in, in the actual browser, that was like groundbreaking for me. And I remember I had to build like checkboxes and scroller bars, buttons, like all the kind of components that normally you used to build applications in modern app development environments. I had to just build all of this from the ground up in Flash 4. Um, Incredible. That must have taken weeks yeah. or months <laughs> to to get a simple yeah, yeah, wide don't order. remember it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just like because I, I had made the file explorer clone, like look just like Windows File Explorer, but the folder names and drag and drop and like it's just like trying to figure out how to do drag and drop for the first time, like in a place that nobody else like uses to kind of build applications. It's kinda of, it's a fun activity. Interesting. And so that sort of laid the groundwork for what you wanted to do on the web and how you wanted to build Udemy, et cetera. So maybe let's transition to that yeah. about coming to the United States. What was that like? And at what point did you decide to actually yeah. make the pilgrimage? Yeah. So I, I actually started Udemy in Turkey first. So in 2007, uh, so I had at that point, I actually understood the concept of startups and the fact that these applications can become real companies and businesses. And I was looking at YouTube and Blogger as really interesting platforms which democratized kind of videos or publishing. So, and I had this thought about like how you could teach online, uh, especially with a more like a live classroom type of setting. And between the ideas like what, what that you can build a live classroom application that works in the browser. And also this idea that like YouTube and uh, Blogger were essentially creating platforms or marketplaces instead of charging for the software. So I just came up with the idea of building a platform where people could teach live. So I had built a really kind of sophisticated live classroom application. And uh, just the idea was we would create a website and people would just like normal, those like live teaching, live video tools were very expensive back in the day. So idea was like, let's just make it free. Let's really optimize for teaching, like one to many setting. And then let's just try to create video by convincing people to teach online. Yeah, so it's so effectively, like, let's take YouTube and turn it into something that instructors can use. That's kind of the, was the original exactly. thesis. Exactly. Yeah, but, yeah, but, but it, was, it was more live focus. I think the, like, when we came to United States, we didn't make the big twist, which was, the original Udemy idea in Turkey was a live education platform, which is a bad idea. Like so, I, but we didn't know it back then. So we launched that one. That didn't really work. Uh, and I was like going back and forth to Silicon Valley, to working at another startup just to be able to fund my Turkish startup to Udemy in Turkey. So eventually, I decided that I just had to kind of migrate to the United States if I want to really, if I wanted to have a chance at creating a startup because in 2007 that in Turkey, the startup ecosystem was practically non-existent. Well, everywhere uh, outside so, of Silicon Valley, I would say is pretty, was, it was pretty non-existent at that point. Exactly. That's, that's why I, asked. I just knew about Turkey, but like, because I remember when I came to Silicon Valley to work for this kind of startup, uh, it just like, they did things so differently. I was just very surprised. It, like it immediately made me realize like, like we were doing this whole wrong, like this whole idea of, you try to be the perfect application, you launch it, and all of a sudden it goes viral. I just realized this, but it's just that, that didn't really happen. So 
it was a lot more about like iterations and rapidly improving your platform, uh, analytics, customer acquisition. Like we, I kind of re- like learned that as there were all those other disciplines other than just building software. Uh, but it was good. It was actually nice to kind of try it in Turkey. We shut it down. It was like, really hard to migrate to United States. So I, I, I uh, the the company I was working for, like they applied for H one visa, which was denied. Uh, not denied. Sorry, I, I just lost in the lottery. Um, and I think I honestly like. Wow. Yeah. Oh, you did mention this yeah. to me. Yeah, and you, be, you you got a special visa as a result of that because you found another way, correct? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I've changed. I now I have a green card, but I, I, I've changed maybe like four different visas. So, uh, I mean, I, I came technically as an intern with a J-1 visa. And then I think the next year there was a crisis, a financial crisis in the United States. So, like, the H-1 applications went down significantly. So, that kind of gave me a chance to just get an H-1 visa because nobody else was bringing engineers. Uh, so yeah, I kind of jumped from like an internship visa first, and then I just uh, did a little work visa, and then I later just took a national interest waiver based green card. But it was even the visa process was like maybe like two three years off. Kind of really wow. in there. Wow. And so, how did you get to how did you get to the United States by by way of where? Yeah. So I, there was a startup called Speed Date. Which was started by these oh, two yeah. Stanford Business School grads. Uh, so they had this idea to do live video dating, video-based speed dating. And at that time, there weren't really that many people who knew how to build live video applications. So they found out about this live classroom thing. Like I think just randomly found our profile online, and then they asked me to work there. So I just started working there at night when I was in Turkey. And then when we realized Udemy, the, the first take on Udemy in Turkey was not going to work, we decided to shut it down. I just came to the United States through that company. Uh, and just we, it's actually funny, we converted our live teaching platform to a live dating platform, like in a course, and we launched SpeedDate that way. <laughs> so you used a lot of the same learnings or, the, or even the same code? <laughs> it, it was literally the same code. We just like changed <laughs> from live classroom to just like, we change the UI a bit and make like a dating application, which is where all the live kind of like activity was happening. It was back then. Then it was a really like live video was more serious for porn, I think. So, uh, and then I think the, the using for like video speed dating wow. was like a very novel idea. Um, but I think I, I learned quite a bit of speed. I'm actually really glad I had that kind of two-year kind of break because. Speed like we launched the product in seven days. It was very iterative. And I don't remember, actually, you'll remember those times. Do you remember the times where I almost call like the golden age of Silicon Valley, where everybody was really focused on viral growth? So it was all about really kind of scary yeah. tactics to become viral. Like, you would like, yeah, how, can you Facebook copy, platform. how can you copy Facebook? Yeah, Facebook platform, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Of course, yeah. Yeah, Facebook, LinkedIn, High Five, and uh, like all those companies are like all oh, social networks are super like scary, honestly super spammy in their growth tactics and everybody was like okay, cloned as aggressive uh, growth tactics so that was like at that time that you will probably remember and actually at speed that I think we probably were one of the most aggressive like I would just call, call straight up outrageous in like the tactics we were applying so uh, we were just like I think uh, Facebook had to keep adding more and more policies on their platform to kind of 
to make what we were doing kind not evolve, right? So we just keep finding like like holes in their system and just use it for growth purposes. So uh, it was like it was again, it was it, it was not the type of thing it like work you would be proud of. Uh, because we're just really trying to make a, I mean, we had 30 million users, so like it grew very fast, but a lot of work on aggressive growth tactics. Uh, but also, but it did actually allow me to learn a lot of kind of actually mechanical skills about tracking and scaling and uh, like growth methodologies. And I also learned a lot of what not to do. I actually just learned that these so super numbers driven models, like, if you just assume only thing that matters is the numbers, like I actually quickly learned how that was a kind of you built yeah, a bad you build product, a bad, you build a, like bad product, and I just like quickly realized the the flaws in the super and number oriented thinking. So, but it's essentially got right. a lot of both mechanical skills, but also kind of early on built like a philosophy around okay, you know, like numbers don't tell the full picture. You just still have to believe in like intuitions and what you think is right. Yeah, I, I remember. So the, the first time I heard about you was Goggin called me, uh, Goggin Biani, your other co-founder at Udemy. And he, he calls me and he says, you got to meet this guy, Aaron. He's really smart. He just got here from Turkey. And I was thinking to myself, okay, th- this is an interesting call. Because I, I, I hadn't heard from Goggin in a, in a while. Uh, we went to college together and, and debated against each other in high school. But he called me and he's like, you have to meet this person. Like you, And I, I remember... Um, that that was how he described you. It's just like, I, he's like, I can't describe Aaron. I just know that he's going to be an innovator and you have to meet him. Um, so how did the two of you get connected um, initially? Yeah, so when I came to Silicon Valley and decided to start Udemy again, uh, we, uh, I went to this incubator called Founders Institute. Uh, I think it was the first class that Adi Oresti was oh, yeah. starting. And... And one of the things that was super appealing about this is like at that time, I think Y Cometa had also started, but they were only accepting full-time applicants. Um, Founder Institute was more like more inclusive. Like you didn't, because I was on a visa, I couldn't like just quit my job and uh, just start a company. So it was essentially a lot more accommodating for people who are maybe just, just first, like just starting, did not like couldn't really do like other kind of more involved uh, in incubators. So, I joined that class. Uh, Gagan was at, at the same class with a different idea. Uh, so, and I think his idea kind of fell apart. His, he and his co-founder kind of uh, got separated. And then I was looking for a business co-founder, uh, somebody who's going to help raise money, help bring the first instructors. So because I was good at both, both the product development side, but also I understood customer acquisition pretty well. So they, I did like unique mix of two uh, skill sets, but just like talking to an investor was a very intimidating thing for like, for just immigrant entrepreneur, you just came, you have a heavy accent and um, also even like talking to instructors, convincing them to come teach at Udemy. So it didn't think that required talking, like I was actually too shy about it. Uh, so, um, <laughs> yeah. so it was like, kind of, yeah, so it was, and, and Gagan was an amazing talker. Like it was a session we were like, so contrasted, he was super, like, he was super active. Well, it was a strong partnership. It was like yeah. a perfect, it was a perfect uh, arrangement, I remember. And uh, then I, yeah. you know, my next call was to a bunch of angels that, that I was like, this team seems very special. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, Udemy is a, is a $4 billion company. 
um, and publicly traded. So congrats there. I mean, I, I do also want to want to highlight or ask you a little bit about the fact that you're one of these founders that still was invited to write the founder letter in the S1 and still is deeply involved in the company even after multiple CEO changes. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I think you you're incredibly good at is you focus mm-hmm. on how to drive value out of the business and you are very non-emotional about about things when it comes to the come to the business and maybe talk a little bit about that like how you're able to mm-hmm. maintain the, how you were able to maintain these relationships and still be known as the center aura of the mm-hmm. company um, even though you're not the CEO or haven't been the CEO for many years mm-hmm. yeah yeah so I think the the full story that we actually some, sometimes told on you is on Twitter is so I was the CEO for the first four or five years and the company was doing like a, extraordinarily well. So we were doing really well, growing, I think 400% year over year, the, the year uh, yeah, essentially yeah. at the step down. So, mm-hmm. but the board had the thought, so the board wanted to bring another CEO who was going to be more experienced in taking the company to the next step. Uh, and I, uh, and that was the, not a crazy idea. Honestly, at that point, I like I, the bringing on an experienced CEO was like a less more common thing to do, even if the company is doing really, really well. So, um, and at that time, I think the mistake I was doing was like I was too focused on just product and growth, and I had com- like I had completely delegated um, managing investors, the board, uh, the operations, like content, because like. A lot of like non-product stuff, I just didn't really pay a lot of attention to him. And then I actually did not really even spend a lot of like time with the board. I just was almost like ignored them and just did what I was kind of wanting to do. So, and as a result, I think like the, the board's really intent was that their, like, their ideal outcome was I would become the chief product officer and then our CEO back then would become the CEO. So they wanted to make the change but I didn't initially take that change request well. So I, I just like got emotional and I, I was like, I didn't fight it too much, but I just said, you know, like, okay, I'm just going to step down. Like, and I'll let him become the CEO. I'll, I'll be supportive if needed. But so I, I, there was definitely some emotions in the first, like I would say six months. But then I think like what maybe what I did differently than some other founders in this similar situation is I just really focused on like, what is it that I could have done better, right? Because I also kind of realized there was some CEO, there was some parts of the CEO job I just didn't do well. Like, I, as the company was growing, I, first of all, I had delegated a lot of things in a way, just I didn't even pay attention to them. But the company's success relied on all those things. So I kind of realized I should have been a more, like, well-rounded CEO. I just, I can't just be somebody who cares about product and tech and, become the CEO of a company whose success also relies on other other things. And I also kind of realized I have to really improve my communication skills. Uh, I have to improve my writing. I have to improve my kind of really kind of vision setting. Uh, like I, I just kind of decided that like I wasn't necessarily, like, necessarily an A plus CEO. I just felt like I was a B minus CEO anyways. So I decided to that I instead of trying to feel, instead of feeling bad about this, I'll just use this as an opportunity to maybe start another company and became become an A plus CEO this time. Uh, so, so <laughs> and I, you I took those really... learnings. You basically took those learnings yeah. to um, uh, to to carbon, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Honestly, like a lot of what we do do really, really well at Carbon are just things where I felt like I, sh- I could have done better at Udemy, which I didn't, like I didn't know. So, and I wanted to really just like start a company from first days on top of a very, very strong foundation, right? So I just did a lot of things very differently. So at Carbon, so it, it really was honestly, in a way it was fun for me to almost have another shot at like doing things differently because once the company is large enough, sometimes it's too hard to change, like kind of steer the company. So at Carbon was a brand new company and I was right. able to just do things like really kind of in a real authentic way. Uh, which I'm honestly again, like at the time I was kind of upset about the, the the board's desire to make a change, but I made this like I'm right now like feeling really happy about it because because now it was nice to restart and like do it more do things more authentically. And actually, I didn't even like the, the two board members uh, like that like asked me to step down. I didn't actually have a bad relationship with them. I just after I left the board, I, I actually after I left my CEO job, I started spending even more time with our investors. I started talking to them more often and engaging them with more often. And actually one of those board members who asked me to step down later became the Series A investor of Carbon. So and he he has been <laughs> in my board like ever since. Um, and Carbon I think he's actually listening right now. Right? Right, he might be listening to Paul Lee. So <laughs> yes exactly yeah, he is he's I'm right seeing, there. Yeah, he's, should we he's invite him like, to speak quickly? Should we invite him to say something? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. sure. We, let, let's invite him. But I think like the uh, Paul, if, if you want to join, just feel free to join here. But I think it was actually <laughs> like, it, 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 I think in retrospect, it was a really great decision for me to not like take it personally and really consider it as a, as a new kind of as a growth opportunity, which I think really Paul was one of the people who really helped me do, do that. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, that's that's fantastic. Oh, we got here. We've got Paul. He's on mute. Um, well, well, maybe he can say a few words. But so, so maybe walk through a little yeah. bit about the thesis of. Um, oh, there he is. He's on speakers, and um, let's see what he what he has to say about asking you to quit as CEO at Uni yeah. and then funding you as a Series A investor uh, at Carbon. Yeah, actually, it's funny. We never probably openly talked about this before. So. <laughs> it would be a fun, Let's do it live. Fun first time. Yeah, <laughs> but we have been very close, like for 10, 12 years. We never probably like uh, kind of seriously discussed it. Hey, the, Paul. Uh, hey, how are you guys? This is a fascinating podcast. Considering I've known this guy yeah. for over a decade, and I'm like hearing some of these things for the first time. So it's like it's an amazing podcast, live podcast. Thank you. Uh, so I yeah. don't have that much time because I promised my wife I'm, I'm like semi-retired. And so I told her I would be less engaged in tech, but I kind of snuck on to listen to this because I saw Aaron's tweet. But look, the biggest thing I think, I, Aaron, I don't know if you remember, but um, when I had just raised my fund, you and I caught up over lunch. Yeah. Uh, we went to, um, I think it was like a Mediterranean restaurant in San yeah. Francisco. Yes. Yeah, and this was like the first time we had actually talked uh in i don't know a year or so but i i think a lot of that lunch was just kind of like both of us opening ourselves up and so a lot of what aaron was saying today about you know his failings as a founder which i didn't 100 percent agree with but i i actually thought there were circumstances there which we don't have to go into today but you know a lot of it came from me which was i told aaron uh had i been older uh, and been more mature, I probably would have handled things differently and we would have had different discussions around it. And so I think that kind of planted the seed for, I wouldn't really call it a reunion because we had been talking, uh, at least, mm-hmm. you know, 
over text and phone and stuff like that. But I, just seeing him now as the founder and CEO of Carbon, I, I got to tell you, Aaron, you talked about A plus. Like in my you know twenty years of venture investing, like literally top one percent of CEOs. Like if you actually look at the employee comments at his company, all the way from you know executive team down to like the people who just joined a month ago, the kind of things that Aaron is doing right now within the company from a culture standpoint and the prioritization, I'm just blown away. Like he has so much foresight on this business. And, you know, it's not like uh, we agree on everything, right? I remember Aaron two years ago having this discussion about focus and you were kind of pressing out how important it is to like be prescient and be thoughtful about alternatives. And really, like, it's amazing how, um, I'll use the word again, prescient this guy is, because he just kind of sees the future in a way that other people don't. And frankly, the, the company would not be anywhere near what it is today uh, had Aaron not really fought for his beliefs and, like, been the CEO that he is today. Yeah. Yep. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, it's Paul. actually cool to see the, to see the discussion here uh, live and, and uh, appreciate it. Um, uh, but I, I want, yeah, I'm going to, you're going to drop, I'm going to drop off. I'm going to listen, but like, I, I just, I, I can't say enough about this guy. Like just unbelievable founder. <laughs> the, and by the way, he was a great founder at Udemy, but I, I would say he's probably 10 X the CEO today, if not more than he was then. And he was a really good CEO then. So I'll leave it on that and I'll drop off. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> Thank you. Paul. So, um, Maybe we we uh, we've been at this for about forty minutes now. I, I think I'd love to switch gears a little bit. You know, Carbon Health mm-hmm. is a monstrous success. You've got you're opening new centers every month. Um, you're across multiple states, and you've helped so many people have access to mm-hmm. primary care, urgent care, and virtual care. And people can definitely go check out the company. But I'd love to talk with you a little bit about. Um, how you feel about the United States right now, the current state of immigration in the United States, and what you think the, the country is doing right and wrong um, to encourage people mm-hmm. like you to come here and build a, build a carbon health, build a Udemy. Yeah. Look, I, I think the, uh, like the, look, immigrate, there are all, definitely a lot of things that you can improve about immigration. We can talk about this, but I, one thing I want to say is, we always discuss, for example, like the shortfallings of U.S. United States, but we don't always appreciate where it's really good. So, look, there might be some racism in the United States, but it's also probably the least racist country in the world, right? It is very welcoming, I think, to many people. Like, again, like, it's not like there's any, there are no problems, but it's also a much more progressive place. Uh, there are opportunities for like immigrants, and generally, like majority of the country is really kind of open, welcoming to immigration. So I would actually just like start with saying like this is again. Sometimes we could uh, talk about what could be better, but we should just first appreciate that it's actually a, a fairly welcoming country for immigrants, right? That's like because somebody like me, like in most countries, there would be no way that the country would make, give me the opportunities I have uh, in the United States. So in one way, like I really appreciate like what already exists, what other people have done kind of before. But I would say there was a t- like the, um, the high skill immigration is one of the biggest competitive advantages of the country. And the country doesn't always appreciate how much value it is get- getting from it. So I think this is the part where like 
like I really struggled for two, three years to get my visa and everything. Like I couldn't even apply for a green card when I was working at Udemy because as a as the owner of the company or like founder of the company, you cannot even apply for a green card. There were all these like things that were like kind of a huge amount of some more kind of iterative improvements in like how founders can get a visa when they're younger, early stage companies, but also like how they can get a more permanent status when their companies are large. Because I would say it was not a trivial thing to have a company to a certain size where my visa status was not really kind of safe. Like as in, as in like I could be out of the country like any given year, right? So. That especially as one when the company says two three hundred people, like these things become like serious concerns. So I would say like the there's a ton of time to improve improve, but also like this country also does like provide a lot of opportunities for people like who are working hard. Absolutely. I mean, I, I also I I can I'm concerned that the the mainstream media polarizes this concept of immigration we we have a tendency in the united states to try to keep people out or believe that people are going to come in and steal resources from us but when you look at immigration in general if it is real legal immigration and if we were actually allowed for more channels and more opportunities for people to come to the country they would build companies like udemy and carbon and who are we keeping out that are like you? That's what I always worry about. Are they going to China to build the company, mm-hmm. their companies instead? And that's, or they, are they going to? And I feel like we have an opportunity now over the next 20 years to create mm-hmm. more opportunities for people to build businesses here because you've employed thousands of Americans and that wouldn't have happened had you not come to this country. So mm-hmm. anyway, uh, anything else that you want to leave the audience with on your thoughts on immigration, I, I know that it's amazing to see the, the sort of struggle that you went through to get here, and we're so fortunate to have you come and build t- these two great companies. But what do you think that, um, what would you say to people that are like you outside the U.S. that are thinking of coming here uh, when they see in the media that it is like that we that we maybe don't accept immigrants? Because mm-hmm. I think we should be accepting of immigrants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I, I think uh, immigration has been just really polarizing subject. And interestingly, like, it's a little different than other politically polarized subjects, as in, I think in both, like, left and right, there are kind of very strong anti-immigration immigration groups. Uh, so it's not a, just like a left versus right issue. It's just really, I think it's a kind of populist versus more kind of rational pol- political leader issue. Because the populists can they always use immigrants as a scapegoat, like like stealing your jobs, that they just can ignore some real facts and just can they use those like a populist okay, talking point. Um, and then, but if you look at it rationally, you are taking some of the most well-educated people who are coming, building real industries, real kind of workforce. At this point, like majority of the world's economy, especially in the United States, is, is just information economy. It's just really, it's knowledge, it's expertise, and people coming, like t- experts coming to your country, like is the best, like surest way of dominate, like keeping the dom- uh, dominant position. And if they don't do it, I actually, in the past, people would think, oh, if you, immigration is bad, like do people go to China instead or other countries instead? But in practice, what's happening is uh, like US we might just lose its dominance and it might end up going more international, more distributed. Because I think the biggest risk right. of like U.S. kind of 
not keeping it. It's That's actually strength is if people just say like, it's just not worth the like hassle to try to migrate everybody to the United States. Let's just like be removed first. And then again, like at one point they will say like, you know what, do we even need to start a company in the United States? Can we just incubate and start to incorporate the company in another country, which has more kind of business friendly rules and uh, maybe tax laws are different. Right? So I think the, 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 the I think that there's a huge risk of for United States to lose its like almost monopoly in this like top kind of largest tech companies, and that will be just because like, we're, see, we're yeah. seeing it happen. We're yeah. we're seeing it happen even internally, right? Like we have crazy, frankly, dumb progressive policies in San Francisco mm-hmm. where uh, people just want to leave because there are high taxes and lots of crime. And so they move to Miami because they can work remotely. But then on the converse, we also have crazies on the Republican side and you know on the Trump, Trump side that say, we got to ban all people of Muslim origin. I mean, mm-hmm. both of these policies are radical and extreme. What we really do need is something that's in the center that maintains our mon- uh, the monopoly that we have. I agree with you. The monopoly that we have over over top talent. And I feel like we're losing that yeah. as the world becomes more distributed. Yeah, yeah honestly, I mean, maybe it will be good for the world and not as good for the United States. But <laughs> yeah. So, like, it may be that positive for the world, for like, for that to be, like, for tech world, tech industry to be more like this, just like in more places. And again, I, I think there are very strong secular technology shifts which already go that direction, but pl- like that plus like hostility against startups and innovation, uh, like that combination is better. Like, it, like when I first came here, like it was only like 10 years ago, if you're a successful founder, you'd mostly be appreciated and kind of like, like the, the press would praise you, right? Like, so right now, I think there's a very negative sentiment against really people who are even like self-made successful people who have also been successful in very legitimate channels. Like you become successful by just building the largest, I don't know, like large e-commerce platform. And like, even if there's like really no argument that you are doing anything unethical, I think like, like the, the default assumption of the press these days against like founders has, has gone from like, like making them heroes, which was maybe a little bit exaggerated to then like, it never became, it was neutral and it went from like, like making them heroes to making them like villains very, very fast. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that Facebook has become more powerful than the media. So they're vilifying every single founder um, as a result of trying to constrain that power. But that's an entirely separate topic. But I agree with you. It's it's too bad because there are people like you that are building companies that have made, you know, brought health to the health care services to the mainstream. So in any case, I we're come we're we're way over time. I I actually do have to jet, mm-hmm. and I know that you have a busy day. I don't know how you do it, Aaron, with three kids and two companies. But yeah. um, I'm as usual very impressed with everything that you've done, and and lo- and very happy to call you a friend. Um, thank you for doing this, and and really appreciate the time explaining your story. Hopefully, it's inspiring some people globally that coming to the United States is still the the best choice to build their dreams. So. Uh, Thank you so much, Aaron Bali, everybody.